We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Do you ever feel like you're always on? What do you do when you need a moment to chill? How do you like to hit the reset button to get ready for what's next? These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nothing but nonstop hustle all the time. Work, family, friends, a million pressing social issues, and an expectation to be on 24-7. Sometimes you just need a moment to turn off and hit the reset button. That's when you reach for an ice-cold Coors Light, the beer that's made to chill. Listen, there's a lot going on in Green Bay right now, and I feel like we could all use a moment to chill with a Coors Light. See, Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's literally made to chill. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. Perfect for a moment to unwind. Coors Light is what I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in their all-new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado, and as always, celebrate. Twenty minutes a day, three hundred sixty-five days a year. This is the Pack a Day podcast. Hello, everybody. Welcome into episode 648 of the Pack-A-Day podcast. I'm Andy Herman. You can follow me on Twitter at Andy Herman NFL. You can follow my writing at Packer Report. Joining me today is friend of the podcast and one and only Justice Mosqueda. Justice, I wanted to bring you on today because so much of the talk of the Packers draft wasn't always just about the actual players that they picked, but the philosophy of how they went about drafting the players that they selected. So before we jump into that, I wanted to get, uh, you know, just welcome you to the episode. Thank you so much for joining me. And I really want to be able to dig into that today. And personally, uh, I think you're one of the smartest minds out there when it comes to the philosophy of football and team building. So really super pumped to have you on today. Yeah, I appreciate it. Anytime. Go pack, go, and all that. <laughs> my, my girlfriend <laughs> yeah. took a video of me uh, reacting to the first pick that the Packers took, and uh, I, my facial expression will never be seen on the timeline. But it it was amazing. Yeah, I wish we could. Uh, I wish we could put that uh, the video in the the podcast somehow. Um, I'll only assume it's as epic as described. Uh, so, Justice, before we jump in and before we get to all of the Packers selections and things like that, I know you just recently spent some time with the XFL. You were the director of scouting for Optimum Scouting, um, which provided the scouting services for the XFL. I was wondering if you could just kind of enlighten our listeners a little bit to to what you guys were doing with the XFL, what your job was, and, and what you kind of learned from that process. 
Yeah, so basically what we did is we ran um, – I don't know if, how close you guys followed the XFL or anything, but, like, we basically had a combine set up in every single uh, city that was going to have an XFL team. So, like, um, we had one in Seattle, one in St. Louis, one in New York, et cetera. Um, and we basically had – I think it was close to 700 players in total, um, guys who, for the most part, had spent time uh, in the NFL, went through – uh, you know, a full combine slate with these 700 guys, which is something that's never been done before at that scale. And that's something that we almost took on completely um, in terms of like the planning and how to get the players, which players who like coordinating all that stuff with the teams. Um, and then we essentially control the player pool um, for the XFL, which is what the uh, general managers slash head coaches our head coaches in, at the XFL were also their general managers. The, has, the highest um, front office only position uh, for XFL teams was director of player personnel. Um, so the, the head coaches had final say over rosters and stuff like that. And uh, they basically picked players from our player pool in both the XFL draft that was, I think it was 70 rounds, and then the supplemental draft and stuff that came after that. Um, and then we also ran Team 9, which was like our um, way to basically cut down the cost of having to fly guys out um, all the time for when guys would get injured. Because, uh, like, basically the way that the NFL works, right, is, like, on, like, Tuesdays, um, guys come in and, like, general managers come out and watch them, scouts watch them, coaches watch them and work them out. Um, and then they have, like, this rolling list of, like, all right, these are free agents that we know are, like – healthy and ready to go right now. And basically once final cut downs happened, um, Optimum Scouting was in charge of basically filling out team nine, which was a team, uh, basically a practice squad team that was stationed in Dallas that was getting guys ready to go at all times. So that um, if anyone ever got injured at, 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 for, on a 52 man roster for the XFL, that they could move up stuff like that. So that, that's basically what I've been doing for the better part since probably summer of 2018. And I've consulted with NFL teams and stuff uh, before that, but that was like my first full-time kind of front office type role in football. Well, congratulations, first of all. You guys did a tremendous job. I'm sorry that everything ended kind of the way that it did, but you guys deserve a lot of credit for the product that you guys were able to put together and the product that you guys were able to put on the field. Was there anything about the, the position that you know surprised you? Is there anything that maybe the, the average casual fan you know doesn't understand you know what actually goes into maybe scouting these players? I know a lot of people will watch players on tape, and that's not that, that's a small piece of the actual puzzle. Uh, you know, can you kind of enlighten us a little bit into to maybe some of the things you learned or maybe just some of the things that maybe the, the casual fan doesn't understand? Um, I, I would say that, you know, we were kind of an interesting spot because we weren't necessarily part of the NFL, like, infrastructure, right? Sure. And the NFL infrastructure comes with a lot of things in that, like, there's so many people working in these scouting departments um, that, you know, th there's no lack of labor at all, right? So, like, one of the things that I, I did was we worked with analytics heavily to get all these things pinned down and make sure that we weren't um, – make, basically making sure that we weren't making our player pool so big that we were spending all this money on, like, background checks and all this stuff for guys who weren't going to end up getting picked, while at the same time not overlooking anyone. Um, and it seemed like the coaches were actually pretty receptive um, to analytics – 
from that perspective. And then, you know, the, the, the rule changes with the XFL and stuff like that. So like working with the modeling of like how we expected that to go to kind of give coaches uh, a heads up, I guess, of like what reality was going to look like with those rule changes and like, all right, this is how you need to be playing this style of football that actually physically has never been played before for a full season. We only played 20 games, but I think we did a pretty good job predicting what was going to happen. And we did a really good job of predicting who was going to get drafted and who was going to stick on rosters even after they got drafted. Um, I would say the two biggest poll, the two biggest takeaways um, that I had from this whole experience is coaches have so much pull um, specifically at like defensive back and offensive line positions. Um, Coaches, who will have those roles have a lot of pull because not a lot of people in the room understand the positions the same way that they do. Right. Sure. So like an offensive line coach, like if he has his guys, it's going to be pretty hard to sell them that like before they even play a game that like one of his guys probably shouldn't be just given a starting role type thing. And then the other thing that I would say is just from, from uh, having conversations with people in the XFL and people who know kind of the business of football and all that stuff. Um, really what we think of like general managers and like just executives in general at the NFL level doing so little of it has to do with like sitting down and watching a ton of college film and then making draft picks. Like there's so many decisions that they have to make on a day-to-day basis that like this, like it's almost like if, if you're really like, if you're in a general manager position where you're like really running the actual team, um, building a team is like almost a small part of it, which sounds very weird, but there's just so many decisions and so many actions that have to be made on a day-to-day basis. Yeah, I can only imagine. And like I said, there's there's so much that goes into all of those decisions. And um, I can only imagine, especially on the XFL level, when, um, you know, probably a general manager has potentially even a little bit more on their plate, because like you said, there's probably not the same level of resources uh, and people as, as there are on the NFL level, for sure. Yeah, and the, one of the things that I thought was interesting, too, is a lot of these guys, I mean, all these guys are mic'd up and stuff, right? Um, the, the play callers and stuff for the XFL games. Um, a lot of these guys ended up, like, even if they were, like, offensive uh, coaches and, you know, were former offensive coordinators and stuff, they delegated play calling to uh, different people. So, like, Mark Tressman, for example, didn't call plays for a while in Tampa and stuff like that. Um, and I thought that was pretty uh, pretty interesting. Um, Kelvin, Kevin Gilbride, who, you know, won two rings as a play caller in New York, wasn't calling plays for the New York Guardians and stuff. And it's just kind of interesting to see when – when you get into those head coaching jobs, it's not necessarily everyone's uh, goal to be like the head coach play caller, right? Sure. Sometimes when you get into that head coaching role, you need to delegate um, that play calling uh, duty, you know, during the game because it takes so long to uh, get right. I, I heard a clinic that Mike Gundy was talking about, and he was saying, you know, to really do it right as a play caller, like you really got to be putting in like 50 hours a week in just that. And that's why he doesn't really call plays at Oklahoma State and stuff like that, even though his offense is always doing really good. Like, the structure is his, but, like, to physically call plays and, you know, know the ins and outs of the opposing defense and your your personnel and all those things, like, it just takes so much that unless you're, like, a natural who was basically raised with it, right, like a uh, sure. Kyle Shanahan or, or a Sean McVay or something, where they, they've literally been groomed since they were, like, children 
to kind of take these jobs and they're almost natural at it in a very specific way too. Um, that it's kind of a hard thing to kind of handle. And it's not everyone's dream to be, you know, play calling offensive coordinator to then jump to head coach and be play calling head coach. No, there's a, there's a lot that goes into that duty for sure. Uh, last question on the XFL before we kind of jump over to, to the Packers draft. And that's, was there a player or two, uh, in the XFL that, that really stood out to you as you were kind of watching things to develop and, uh, you know, anyone that you'd like to shout out from a, a player standpoint? Yeah, I think PJ Walker did great and he developed like crazy. Um, you know, he's playing in the run and shoot for June Jones in Houston and he probably would have won MVP if, uh, the season would have played out and stuff. Um, he did a great job. There were certain guys like uh, Pearson L., the wide receiver who played for St. Louis. He basically only played in the slot um, for them, but they were they basically had a slot receiver on the field at all times. Um, he did great both in the AAF last year and in the XFL this year. Um, I'm trying to think. Martez Ivy was a guy who I thought probably took the greatest strides of anyone in the XFL. Because if you watch what he did in college at, at Florida – and then you watch what he did in the XFL this past year. Um, it's almost night and day. And he was kind of a younger guy and an offensive lineman. Um, so, you know, mentally, we in the XFL knew we were going to lose some of these guys to NFL camps at the very least. And he was a guy who was kind of a surprise to us in that way where, um, you know, we thought, you know, maybe he was a borderline starter at our level. And he ended up being one of the best offensive tackles um, in our league and, you know, very well should get a shot. Um, at the NFL level. And I think, you know, a guy like Storm Norton, he might actually be in uh, a competition to win the starting left tackle job for the Chargers this year because they really have nothing at offensive tackle outside of Brian Belaga, and Belaga is going to play right tackle. Um, So, you know, people thought the Chargers could basically take an offensive tackle at six or whatever they were sitting at in the draft if they didn't go quarterback. Um, And they just didn't draft a tackle at all because they traded back up for, for Kenneth Murray and that ended up taking a bunch of resources. So, they kind of have an empty spot at left tackle, and that might be a situation where a guy like Storm Warren could come in and end up winning that job, actually. Yeah, it would be a really fun story. And, uh, yeah, P.J. Walker, uh, you know, will have the opportunity in, in Carolina to back up Teddy Bridgewater. So some really good stories that came out of it, and, and hopefully we see even more of those. And, yeah, Storm Norton maybe winning a left tackle job would, would be a great result of, I'm sure, a lot of the things that he picked up on the XFL level. So really cool stuff. I appreciate you sharing that with all of us. It kind of peels back the curtain a little bit and uh, allows us to kind of see into that world. It's always fascinating to get that take on things, so I appreciate it. Um, we'll definitely pivot over, obviously, to the, the Packers draft. Draft, something I'm sure uh, you're very familiar with at this point. I'm not sure how much you've had the uh, opportunity to dig into a ton of tape of these players, but like I said, one of the big things that I'm looking for, and then I really wanted to pick your brain on, was more the, the philosophy surrounding the picks. You know, spending a first round pick on, on Jordan Love uh, when you've got Aaron Rodgers under contract for four years. You know, drafting a power halfback uh, or uh, a power running back in the second round, uh, which is generally uh, among analytical circles, maybe a little bit of a no no. Josiah Deguera, an H back in round three. So those are kind of the conversations that I wanted to, to really dive into today and, and probably no better place to start than really the topic of discussion around the NFL this week, which was the, the Packers selecting Jordan Love as the potential heir apparent uh, to Aaron Rodgers. So I'm just going to let you have the mic and uh, let me know your thoughts on the pick and, and kind of the philosophy behind it. Yeah, well, there's I feel like we've attacked this from so many angles that there's not really anything, you know, crazy that I could say about it at this point. Like, all right, they drafted him. Um, Aaron Rodgers is functionally under contract for at least two, maybe three years, right? So he's going to be on the bench for at least that many years. Um, 
the hope, I guess, from from their side would be, you know, Love signs on a fairly cheap contract when when Rogers is on his way out. But when guys like Teddy Bridgewater are already getting twenty million a year, I mean, how cheap can you really re-sign a guy like Jordan Love when you took him in the first round with the Hall of Fame quarterback already sitting there? Right. Um, I do kind of think that the uh, the whole idea about them switching from uh, the passing game to the running game is funny. Like they didn't just take a quarterback to sit on a bench in the first round that they traded up for, mind you, right. um, which I assume must have been uh, – they must have felt some heat from like the Colts or something like that. I, I'm not totally – I'm not 100% sure on that, so don't take my word for that. But I'm just speculating like – if they wanted to move up, they wanted to move up to jump someone, and teams move up for reasons. Um, but I, I think the real story about the Jordan Love thing is just kind of the dynamic that Mark Murphy has right now, right? Because, like, usually – so, like, I, I believe this is true, that Jordan Love and Aaron Rodgers have, are working with the same agency. So we're going to get into that weird kind of, like, gray area of, like, can you extend Jordan Love while getting rid of Rodgers without letting Rodgers know and, like – the whole con- the conflict of interest of that that we saw with Tom Brady and Jimmy Garoppolo in New England, right? Um, right. And at, in the end, the person who put a stop to that was the owner. Well, the Packers don't have an owner. And we're in a situation where Mark Murphy is having both the general manager and head coach report to him directly, which is very different than when, like, Ted Thompson was, like, actually running the Packers and everything was going through the GM. So we're in a different kind of structure in terms of, like, how the actual organization runs. And a lot of this comes down to like Mark Murphy's going to have final decision on a lot of these things in a way that like only NFL owners have. And Mark Murphy, you know, it, it might, I mean, how many of these owners like quote unquote, like deserve to be running teams from like a football perspective. Right. I mean, that's sure debatable and all that stuff, but like they put the money to like own these teams and you can make the argument that outside of NFL owners, Mark Murphy is probably the most powerful executive in the NFL. And that's kind of crazy to think of because when you think of the Packers, everyone's talking about Goot or, you know, LaFleur and stuff like that. But, like, Murphy has a ton of power that I'm not sure people really understand. Yeah, that's a really interesting dynamic. Actually, both of those, you know, having the same agent and how that could potentially play out and how this could potentially play out with Mark Murphy as well. You know, are you thinking that this could lead to a – uh, a situation where, you know, Gutekunst, you know, maybe has a, a trade offer on the table for Aaron Rodgers and, you know, down the road, obviously I'm not talking now, but that, you know, down the road and, you know, wants to make the move to Jordan Love and Matt LaFleur is like, whoa, 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 no, I'm not, I'm not ready to move forward with Jordan yet. Like I, I, I want, you know, I want to finish. I mean, by all, by all accounts, that's his dude. So like <laughs> you, right. you made your bed, you got to lay in it type thing. The, the one thing that I kind of think is interesting is like, once your cap hit gets so big, you get to a point where you almost have to restructure it, right, just to stay competitive. Sure. Um, and the Packers are gonna, aren't – I mean, they, they could have right now been in a spot where they could start restructuring Rodgers' contract to give him a little bit of cap space and just kick money down the line like, you know, the Steelers, the Saints, you name it, have been doing for forever. Um, but that seems like it's an off-the-table type of thing now. So now we get to 2021 – where his cap hit is going to end up being um, 36 million, and his dead cap is going to be 32, and, or yeah, basically 32 million, which would set the NFL record if he was traded. Right? That's just so much money to end up eating, um, just in terms of the signing bonus and the restructure money. Um, so it seems like 
they're almost going to spend an unprecedented amount of cap space on the quarterback in 2021, um, which is kind of concerning to me when you start saying, like, all right, Preston Smith's contract is going up because right, these contracts yeah. escalate year to year. Preston Smith's contract is going to go up. Zadarius Smith's contract is going to go up. Okay, they're finally going to be able to get some money back from the Billy Turner contract, but they just got back from under the Jimmy Graham contract. And the year before, they got under the uh, – the Nick Perry contract and stuff like that. So it's going to be interesting to see how these uh, salaries really start stacking up. But I really can't see Rodgers being moved before 2022 at the earliest. Yeah, I'm with you there. I think that seems to be the, the time frame where things start to make sense. But you bring up a really interesting fact that I hadn't even thought about in the fact that if they did want to free up some money and, you know, maybe go aggressively after a free agent, say next season, or they needed to free up some money to be able to sign, you know, all of the, the group of David Bakhtiari and Corey Lindsley and, you know, Kenny Clark and having well, the whole well, group. Well, we're at the point where Bakhtiari and Adams can both be restructured too. True. Like if I, if I were in the Packers position, I would just keep kicking that, keep kicking the can. Cause you, you can't really go, you can't really mess up a restructure as long as you, the player is still a guy you want to have around long term, right? Dead yeah. cap only matters if you want the guy gone, right? And I don't think we're at the point where we think, you know, Bakhtiari or Adams are at any point of decline. Yeah, and Kenny Clark, when they do restructure, you know, put his deal together, you would think he'd be in that same boat, especially once, or especially with the age that he's at, too. So, yeah, they definitely should have some options there, but it's all of it's going to be interesting. And like you said, not only probably a little bit more pressure on, on Mark Murphy, but potentially Russ Ball, uh, Brian Gutekunst, uh, Matt LaFleur, and Aaron Rodgers, and Jordan Love as well. So it, it puts a lot of pressure on a lot of different people throughout the organization, which I think is going to be worth keeping an eye on, and really, really great points there. Let, let's jump over to A.J. Dillon and uh, picking him up in the second round. What were your thoughts on that? Is this uh, is this an analytical no-no, or is this something that is all right? The analytics will say that, you know, he did a pretty good job, but he was playing in a pretty unique offense at Boston College that was running so many tight formations that I can't really imagine the Packers are going to be doing that unless they start doing more uh, fly sweep stuff like the the Rams are doing and stuff. So I don't really see a one to one transition to him into the pros. But I mean, he is very productive. He tested a lot better than I thought anyone expected. Um, but I was not super happy with the pick. I saw. I actually uh, I was on Twitter and uh, someone tweeted at me. They picked a running back. So I like threw my phone like <laughs> upside down. Right. Not not to be like, oh, we took a running back, I'm so mad type thing. But I just like didn't want the pick spoiled. So I like I turned I turned my phone upside down and I looked at my girlfriend and I looked at her and I was like, I hope it's Zach Moss and it's not AJ Dillon and then immediately Goodell is like it's AJ Dillon. But whatever. I mean, he is kind of a guy who's like he didn't catch a lot, but that doesn't necessarily mean that like you can't at the next level. I think we've seen enough examples of guys who didn't catch a lot in college. Um, than doing it at the NFL level to say that, like, hey, maybe the sample size is too small. Like, we just, like, literally can't um, judge that if your offense isn't asking that for you. So maybe he ends up doing some of, like, the Todd Gurley play action then throwing it back down to screen type stuff. But I don't imagine he's going to be doing Texas routes and stuff like that, like Kamara's doing and, you know, lining up out wide like Le'Veon Bell or anything like that. I, I think he's more of, like, a screen guy than like an actual route runner is in terms of a pass catcher. But I mean, either way, I, I think it's kind of an interesting thing that they're basically just kind of looking to the future. Um, when they made this pick, I mean, immediately 
it wasn't really about this pick um, necessarily, but like the the first thought that came into my mind was like, oh, they're not re-signing the running backs. Like, right. oh, okay, Aaron Jones and Jamal Williams are both free agents, and their running back room isn't very deep, but it seems like this is going to be their guy in 2021, which whatever. I mean, if you want to take the sixth running back uh, in the draft in the second round so that in a year you can have a guy move from third string to first string, I guess do it. I don't know. At that point, it's just like you're making decisions based off of um, what the financials are going to tell you to do. Because like we, like I said before, Rodgers' cap hit is going to start escalating like crazy soon. So they're not going to really be in a position where they can give Aaron Jones like $12 million, $12 million a year or whatever he's going to end up asking for. Yeah, I think that's, you know, that's the big question that comes off of that as well. You know, going back to his pass catching, I know, uh, and I forget the name of the scout that they brought on the, the press conference as soon as the, the pick was made or right after the pick was made. Uh, he was adamant, you know, that Dylan would be able to catch the ball out of the backfield and, and said that in practice he had natural hands that at the, you know, uh, at the scouting combine he showed natural hands. So he was adamant. And then AJ Dylan, when, you know, uh, the, the press had the opportunity to uh, interview him, he was adamant as well that he feels like he's a very natural, you know, hands catcher as well so like you said does that result in uh, you know Christian McCaffrey role probably not but um, if he can even do it at least at a, a serviceable level that certainly adds some value to the pick certainly seems like somebody who should be able to pick up the blitz well you know the big question I have and you kind of alluded to it as well you know played a lot of you know power football eye formation you know Aaron Rodgers loves, loves playing out a shotgun as we know um, you know how does he make that transition into being a little bit more of a shotgun running back and kind of reading things right. in that regard so and all, all the footwork is different that's one of the things that I don't think people really give credit to when they talk about you know under center and, and shotgun or even pistol um, type of offenses like where the, the timing the footwork everything in the run game is different for both the running back the quarterback and the offensive line like it's way way different and he did a lot a ton of under center and stuff at, at Boston College and one of his uh, tight ends is probably going to be in the, this next draft class. And he was basically the entire offense. I mean, Boston College's quarterback, I don't know how close people follow ACC football for kind of middling ACC teams um, <laughs> out in Wisconsin, but their quarterback basically grad transferred to Oregon. He might end up being their backup. And he was like, I think he started the past two years at Boston College. Like, that's how much. A.J. Dillon meant to their offense, right? Like, he was yeah. the guy, and he was the guy for years and years and years. Yeah, a lot of eight-man boxes, uh, you know, just not only because of A.J. Dillon, but just how they ran here, uh, lined up to run the football as well. So a lot of question marks there, you know, certainly the value. I, I will say going into the season – um, I was definitely of the thought that, you know, J Jamal Williams' role, while really nice and valuable because he can do a little bit of everything, if Aaron Jones were to go down, um, the explosiveness and the big play of the uh, ability of the running back position went down significantly going from Aaron Jones to Jamal Williams. I think Jamal Williams has won maybe two, I think two plays over 20 yards in, in his entire career as a Packer. So this is not an, an explosive playmaking running back. I'm not saying that necessarily A.J. Dillon's the, the, the total answer to that, but I do think he adds a little bit more juice than what Jamal was able to bring, and I definitely think that they upgrade. And whether or not they re-sign Aaron Jones, and I'm with you, I think it's more unlikely. That would be a lot of resources to put into the running back position. Um, and like you said, they've got a lot of other heavy contracts out there to put a second-round pick into A.J. Dillon plus a massive contract into Aaron Jones. Uh, would be interesting to say the least, but I will say that those two should complement each other insanely well. Yeah, it'll be interesting because they did a lot of 
they did a lot of interesting stuff near the goal line with split backs last year, right? Where they would have like actual two running backs, not a running back and a fullback um, split in the shotgun. And I wonder if he starts taking some of those reps from Jamal Williams or something that might give us a hint that, you know, he might be actually RB2 instead of RB3 or whatever. But um, they, they definitely were an evolving offense, and I'm not sure they totally know what they are. And I think they even said it in the press conference where they were like, we build our offense around our skill talent type yeah. thing. Um, and I, I really do think that that's what they did. Cause when you look at like when Lazard really started getting hot and stuff and they were riding the hot hand, like what they were doing. And then when, when Irvin started getting hot and they started building these jet packages for him, as opposed to Geronimo Allison. And stuff. <laughs> um, it's, yeah, I, I really do think that they kind of fit their scheme to whatever their personnel is. So um, I'm interested to see, you know how that ends up, but we'll we'll see what happens because NFL might start in October or something. These rookies might be behind the eight ball, and it might be almost like their rookie year next year as opposed to this year. Yeah, that's that's a really good way to look at it as well. Hopefully that's not the case, but you never know. And uh, jet sweep to Drano Allison should not be in any personnel <laughs> package. Ever, Rip it out! So. Rip the play out for two yeah, years. Exactly. We did this. Uh, too much, too much. All right. So let's, you know, I think it was a, a great way to transition to, you know, speaking of how the, the offense may be changing based off of personnel, Josiah Deguera in the third round, it certainly seems like somebody that's going to fit perfectly within that Matt LaFleur offense. They obviously valued him quite a bit to take him at that point in the third round. What were your thoughts on that? Yeah. So he's an interesting guy. Cause I was able to watch him uh, ahead of time. Cause our analytics flagged him. So like one thing that we did too, with the XFL is we, we were, uh, we were building our 2020 draft class, like, basically when we got let know that that the league was going to fold um, in terms of all the analytics and stuff because we wanted to make sure that by draft weekend, if these guys didn't sign, you know, even undrafted free agent contracts with the NFL, that we were able to pounce on them, get them into the player pool for 2021 and just have that kind of solidified, right? So, like, we were running numbers on all these positions, and DeGuero was a guy who actually looked really good analytically and uh, – you know, based off of his production and his athleticism, right? And then I went to watch him. Um, he's kind of an interesting guy because as soon as that pick was made, I was like, he might end up being a fullback. And then you hear the news that, you know, they're going to move him all over and stuff. I think he's better off the line of scrimmage than as an inline tight end. Even Cincinnati didn't even necessarily use him as an inline tight end um, when they had him and another tight end in the game. So that kind of tells you, like, he, he's not he's not Mercedes Lewis. Right. right. That, that's just not who he is. But he can be a backside guy like a, an, I don't know how nerdy these terms are going to come off, but like a, an H that's like off the line of scrimmage on the backside. Yeah. Um, he could shut down the backside of zone runs and stuff. And that doesn't sound, you know, very uh, sexy. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it, it doesn't sound very sexy, but it's a role that guys play. You know, I wouldn't be surprised if he was the guy who, you know, leaks to the flats after, you know, play action and stuff like that. And also get some fullback reps. Um, is probably where I think he's best suited to be like a real mismatch type of guy, like a use check type of guy. Like I, I really do think that those comps aren't too far from each other because he could catch the ball out of the backfield um, and he could want, run wheel routes and stuff like that, and he'll block like crazy. He's just not such a big guy that you really want him blocking, you know, these Sam linebackers or big defensive ends, you know, every single play. Like he he's a backside blocker, not a frontside blocker, if that makes any sense. Yeah, for sure. I, I kind of put it as like he's more of a 
uh, what, how did I phrase it? it? Not a get by blocker, but he's not the guy that's bringing like the pain and the punishment. But he's definitely the guy that's sealing blocks and still creating alleyways, and he has the opportunity to do that. I love how he looks for work as well as a blocker. You'll see him get downfield and try to find somebody to you know to kind of declete a little bit if he can. But I really I like the player quite a bit. Um, and I'm with you. You know, you I, I turned on the Ohio State game, and within the first quarter, mm-hmm. he's playing slot left, slot right. He's playing H-back, tight end, and, uh, you know, he wasn't even in. Uh, and he was uh, lined up uh, far uh, wide right as well in a straight-up wide receiver position. Um, that wasn't even in a fullback position yet. So that was the first quarter right. against Ohio State. He's all The Ohio the State place. game was funny, too, because I think they start off, like, backed up at the one. Yes, the first drive of that game. Massive formation. Yeah, but at the same time, like, don't take this as, you know, those backside blockers can't be contributors in the passing game. Like, if you go back and watch um, the Carolina Panthers when they had Ed Dixon and Greg Olson, Greg Olson was the backside blocker there, right? Like, Ed Dixon was the the Y who was, like, the real run blocker, right? But Greg Olson, at the same time, as that backside blocker, was still the guy – who is getting the production in the passing game. So I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing. And when you're looking at a guy like Mercedes Lewis, who's basically an unbalanced offensive tackle, right, um, I think that's a pretty good compliment. So we'll, we'll see um, if he ends up playing fullback or how the tight end position ends up working out. Because I, I, I'm probably higher on Tanyan than a lot of people who watch the Packers. I really like his athleticism. I mean, he's still pretty young at the position, transitioning from wide receiver where he was playing at, like, 215 or something in college yeah. um so I, I still think that like he has a chance to become a you know kind of a long-term starter as a tight end and mercedes lewis man he's been who he's been for 15 years he's not going to change anytime soon that dude can block his ass off but i don't know about him in the passing game so we'll see about tanya and sternberger and and Duguera, um battling it out for you know playing time basically but i'm not sure he's a lock to really see the field outside of that backside blocking role and fullback role early on. But we're talking about a guy who's taken 94th and how many rookies really contribute in a positive way, like in terms of volume and in a positive way um, year to year. I think PFF did a study and it was like, there's basically like 20 good, like good rookies every year. And that's not necessarily like for, for the entire draft, uh, and their entire four-year, five-year contract. It's just like there's so few guys who can come in, contribute a lot of snaps early, and then also do it at a rate above, you know, the NFL average. So at that point, I mean, if he has a role to play, that's a win year one for a guy taken in that spot. Yeah, it makes a ton of sense. You know, going back to Robert Tanyan, I've been uh, I've been pretty big on the, the Robert Tanyan bandwagon. I thought one of the things last year – and. Maybe it's just him still learning the position, kind of as you mentioned, but I almost felt like he got caught in no man's land. Like they asked him to put on enough weight so that he could block uh, better, and then I feel like he almost put on too much weight and too much maybe strength that he wasn't the same guy athletically and and from a mobile standpoint as the receiving tight end that he looked like, uh, I thought, even coming out uh, a year sooner. So uh, I think if he can find maybe that sweet spot, and like you said, maybe it's just more of him learning the position a little bit more. I think the talent's there as a pass catcher. He showed him improvement last year as a blocker now it's can he find that peak weight and can he put it all together and if he can I'm with you I think he can be a player I think Graham being gone helps him a lot too right right. because they basically slotted that like pass catching tight end role with Graham or like Tanyan really only came in in the two tight end sets where like Mercedes Lewis was in there too or when you know Vital was it was at uh fullback and stuff so 
Um, yeah. It'll be interesting to see if he can get any isolated, like, 11 personnel looks because he hasn't gotten that many of them up to this point. Yeah, I certainly would like to see it, and I think he would be up to the task, but it'll be a good storyline to keep an eye on this season as well. Uh, obviously, I'm not going to go pick by pick here through through day three and undrafted free agency, but uh, anyone uh, in you know the Packers day three of the draft or an undrafted free agency that, that really stood out to you or you think can make an impact maybe long term? Yeah, John Runyon is a guy who, like, was made to be a Packers draft pick. <laughs> like, he, he, he hits everything. Like, offensive tackle, longtime starter. He was a two-time uh, Big Ten first-team guy. Um, you look at his shuttle drills and his size, like, that's the exact type of guy that the Packers look at, right? Like, you look at their offensive linemen, the offensive linemen um, that they draft – if you look at their their ten yard split, if it's under like one point eight seconds, and then their their three cone is like under like seven seven five, and their forty or their twenty yard shuttle is under like four seven five, there's an extremely good chance that they end up taking that guy because they they t- uh, they take those athletes so disproportionately um, relative to the rest of the offensive line class that it's like statistically significant. And John sure. Runyon was one of the few guys who was able to do that. Um, especially considering the fact that like a lot of these guys didn't run because their agents told them not to run because they were switching the entire combine format to prime time. So a lot of these guys didn't want to like mess around with that draft prep when it's such a big deal. And they just said, you know, punt it, like do it at your pro day. And then coronavirus happens and there's no pro day. Right. So that we have limited data on the athleticism of these guys. And John Runyon was one of the few guys who was able to kind of hit those marks who wasn't already drafted in the first round outside of like Ezra Cleveland. Um, so I thought that was a pretty smart pick uh, for them, and he's a pretty efficient uh, offensive lineman anyway. I wonder if they kick him into guard or if they keep him at tackle. I, I wonder what that situation is going to be like, knowing the Packers they are just going to let guys compete and we'll figure it out like mid-August. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, hopefully, fingers crossed that there's you know preseason and stuff like that. But he was the big guy that I was interested in in terms of the guy that they actually drafted. And then uh, Tipa Galea. He was a guy I saw super late um, doing the analytics process, but he was a guy who was crazy productive. Um, but obviously he has off-field issues. He was kicked out of uh, TCU. But if you turn on the film, um, he's insane. Like, like he's extremely bendy. Um, he wasn't a guy who ran because he, was, he wasn't able to work out at the combine. He was invited to the combine, um, but he didn't get a workout uh, because the NFL has rules against, like, uh, violence and stuff. I think he punched the teammate. Uh, let me let me look that up before I, I slander the man's name. But I, I'm pretty sure he, like, punched a teammate or something and ended up getting kicked out of TCU. Uh, guilty of assault charges. There you go. Uh, not a teammate. But um, he ended up being, like, two-time All-Mountain West once he transferred to Utah State. Um, he's really light is the big issue. I asked uh, the PFF guys after the Packers signed him if they actually liked him because I, I knew that uh, he was going to score good for him just based off of watching him on film. And they were like, if he can add, like, 15 pounds, I'm all for it. But right now he's probably playing in, like, 230s. Um, so we'll see what ends up happening there. But we found my UDFA crush of the offseason already. There you go. It's always good to find your UDFA crush as soon as you can because you got to start pumping that player up and getting on the bandwagon as soon as possible, uh, like I did with Tim Boyle. And uh, we all know Tim Boyle is really going to win the future quarterback competition. In Green Bay, <laughs> so you got to jump on Zach, the bandwagon. Zach Johnson's another guy that some people like, um, I think. I don't know how many 
people are getting excited about a UDFA offensive lineman when we just took three in the draft. But he was a guy who was being talked about as a potential draft pick coming in. And I don't know how much you guys have watched North Dakota State, but that's about as pro style as you can get. Yeah, I know uh, my partner in crime here at uh, the Packer Report and uh, as well as the Packer Day podcast, Ross Uglum, watches quite a bit. He's, he covers the team uh, yeah, and lives in the, North Dakota. The Bison. So, yeah, the bison. exactly. So he should be able to do quite a scouting report. Maybe next time I have a model, I'll have to dig deep a little bit deeper into that. So th- this is fantastic. This is exactly what I was looking for, for, you know, kind of breaking down these draft picks. I'm curious, though. You know, it, it sounds like maybe the, the, the first pick was a little bit questionable. Uh, you, what were your overarching thoughts on the Packers draft? And really not only the draft, but the offseason so far, you know, getting Funchess and Rick Wagner and Christian Kirksey. Um, you know, what has been your thoughts? Has this been a successful offseason, questionable, wait and see, two thumbs down? What are you kind of thinking so far? Well, I actually really like what they did at free agency. Um, I'm not a huge Funchess guy, but like, if they do really start committing to the run and he ends up being like a guy who ends up crack blocking a lot and stuff like that, like that is going to matter. Um, so like that big body type of wide receiver is going to make a real difference uh, compared to a guy like a Jake Kumero who like he blocks his ass off, but he's not a very big dude. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, but I, I really like kind of the value that they found in free agency where it's like, don't overspend on a offensive tackle. You don't want to get the, uh, Dang, who'd the Jets sign? The uh, George backup. Fant? Yeah, you don't want to sign the George Fant contract or anything like that. Like, the linebacker market has exploded over the past years because of C.J. Mosley and stuff. Um, so they kind of found a little bit of a value by taking uh, Kirksey. And, like, I, I can't blame them on that, especially with the budget that they're kind of working on. But I'm just kind of confused a little bit um, based on the draft and, like, the fact that they're not restructuring anyone's contract. Like, what are what window are they planning for? Yeah. Right? So like their their current situation is like they're not kicking any money down, so they're not building any talent. They're not clearing any cap space to add immediate talent on like short term deals or like anything like that, right? So it's not like a win now mode. But at the same time they're also building for the future by taking these guys and looking to replace their backfield essentially. Right? So, like, yep. that stuff is where I start getting confused, where it's like, all right, are we full-blown building for the future after we just handed out all of these contracts in the past two years? Or is it, like, when now, after we were, you know, a game away from the Super Bowl? That's kind of my confusion, and probably uh, based off of, you know, the anonymous sources, you know, Aaron Rodgers' confusion and stuff, too, if you want to believe that or not. Do, yeah. do whatever you will with that. So, <laughs> so I... My my thought on this is that there's always the old adage is that you use free agency for now and you use draft for the future, which ultimately I feel like is the best way to go. However, I'm a million percent with you in what's in trying to figure out what's the end game, what what's the best window to try and win. And it, it, it does sort of have this feel that, you know, they were just in the NFC Championship game. You know, we, we can debate all day long of whether they were really that close to being a Super Bowl contender or not, or if maybe they got, a, you know, lucky in a couple games, however you want to view it. It did seem like maybe the, the best window is within the next two years. 
And if that is, in fact, the best window, it does seem that maybe you'd, at least in maybe in the first couple rounds, maybe want to try to add some ammunition to really try to get over the top, maybe restructure some of those contracts, maybe big, you know, bring in one more big free agent, uh, you know, maybe across the defensive line, maybe at wide receiver or tight end to try to put you over the top while that window is still open rather than trying to get the best of both worlds and maybe not really get any of them. Right. And I do, I, I will say the one thing, that I don't think gets enough credit is when Goot was talking about, you know, after a certain point, there weren't any wide receivers on the board who they thought could really contribute to this team immediately. And I really do believe that because if if you're talking about just from a numbers perspective, right, they already got Adams, MVS, uh, Funches, Kumaro, Lazard, Shepard, St. Brown, Am I missing someone? Irvin? I guess if you want to count Irvin as like a white, he's kind of both. Um, they already have all those guys competing for a spot. And like I said, for rookies, you're basically expecting nothing, right, yeah. out of those guys. So, like, are we just drafting a wide receiver to just draft a wide receiver and then we end up cutting, you know, a more developed player who's ready to contribute to this 2020 team? Because um, once they turned in that second pick, it kind of seemed like wide receiver was off the board, essentially, right? Like T. Higgins yep. gets drafted the first pick of the second round and stuff like that. So I was a big uh, Tyler Johnson guy, the guy out of Minnesota. Um, but I was also aware that, like, NFL guys were not as into him for whatever reason as I was. And I'd known that for a long time. I mean, you could see the guy from uh, Jim Nagy who runs the uh, Senior Bowl talking about him and saying, you know, Maybe he's not a senior bowl type of guy to draft accounts in like October or whatever and he ended up playing at the East West Shrine game and stuff, I think. So um I was aware that like Tyler Johnson was gonna get drafted as high as, you know, I thought he should have been, but Yeah, I, I after think that, after that second pick, I, I didn't think, you know, why there was really a wide receiver on the board outside of, you know, Tyler Johnson. Yeah, I'm with you there, and I think there's an easy story to tell. Uh, Reggie Begleton from the CFL is another receiver, too, that maybe they have Mm -hmm. some hopes for. Who knows? Um, But, uh, you know, I think there's an easy story to be told. You know, the moment that they traded up was after the sixth wide receiver was off the board in the first round. You know, it, it seems to me they didn't really have a chance to get any of those top six wide receivers. And then... I would have to believe that the next group of wide receivers that they had on their board in round one was significantly lower in probably that round two grade when they had probably a a top 15, top 20 guy who was a quarterback on their board. So they move up to get, which I understand. Then in the second round, there's a little bit of a run on, on wide receivers again. Mims is the last one who goes, I think maybe three, two, three, four picks ahead of him. Uh, Once Mims is gone, then there's no second round receiver left worth taking. And then to me, the one guy maybe in the third round that would have made a little bit of sense, Devin DuVernay, he goes two picks before the Packers again uh, when they pick in the in the third round. And then, like you said, at that point, it it, it doesn't even matter who you're selecting anymore because their odds of helping the team uh, at this at this stage of the and, game and even making the roster right. Like if if you're going to have a legitimate camp battle where these roster spots are open and you have to earn that spot, there's enough talent on the Packers in terms of wide receiver depth. Right, that yep. like there's a chance that that guy doesn't make it. The, their issue isn't wide receiver depth; they have bodies, right? They have NFL bodies, guys who are going to make a 53 man roster or practice squad. What they didn't have is a wide receiver two, right? That's the issue that they're running into, or like a speed guy who can stretch the field really. Outside of MVS, who apparently is like in the doghouse or something. I don't know what happened there, but um, yeah. W- once those picks started rolling out, I think the Mims pick 
because men's ended up slipping a lot further than people thought. Um, once the men's pick happened, that's when I was like, all right, they're probably out of the wide receiver market. Yeah, I'm right there with you. Like you said, they probably have 10 NFL caliber wide receivers, but all of them are probably number three, number four, number five, or number right. six wide receivers. Like, oh, obviously, besides Devontae Adams. Were there any other uh, favorite picks that you had in the draft or just general draft thoughts? I always love to pick your brain on these as well. Um, I thought what the Saints did was hilarious. Where they're just like, yeah, I don't want any of these picks. Because, I mean, they spend so much money on, like, mid-level veterans in a way that, like, the NFL really doesn't do. Um, the NFL, like, in terms of contract structure, right, is a real big, like, stars versus scrubs yep. type of approach of, of team building. Um, where only a few guys are getting paid. But the Saints are really, like, you know, like I mentioned before, kicking the can down on, like, Drew Brees' contract and stuff like that. And they sign a bunch of mid-level veterans to fill out the roster in a way that, like, a bunch of other teams don't. Um, so they're kind of to the same point as the Packers wide receiver room. There's not really that many spots up for grabs in terms of roster spots, right? Like, unless someone gets injured. Um, so they just basically punted all those picks and sent them to the Vikings. I thought the Vikings had a pretty good draft. They ended up taking a bunch of different type of DBs um, to a point where, like, some of them are going to end up panning out in, like, their specific roles and stuff. So I'm kind of interested to see uh, what they do. I thought Ezra Cleveland, too, um, was a huge value. I thought he could have been a first-round pick if, you know, the Cleveland Browns traded down enough. And uh, Justin Jefferson was, like, the guy that I was, like – that was kind of the tier of wide receiver that I was thinking, like, trade up for. Yeah, like Justin Jefferson was the very end of it. Um, so they ended up getting him and Ezra Cleveland, who I I thought both were going to go higher than where they ended up going. So I thought both were solid. Yeah, I thought the Vikings had by far one of my favorite drafts, which is very painful to say, obviously. But uh, Justin Jefferson, Jeff Gladney, Ezra Cleveland, and then mm-hmm. you know they had the best of both worlds, right? So there's always the philosophy of, hey, get your top 50, top 100 guys because those are the only guys that matter. Uh, kind of like what the Saints did, you know, give me top 100, you know, guys. I don't care about anyone that's picked after that. And then there's the, you know, Jimmy Johnson, Ron Wolf, you know, thought of, hey, we want as many bites of the apple as possible. Give me 16 draft picks, and I'm going to hope to hit on four or five six of them regardless of where I selected them well the Vikings did both you know they had three really strong top 50 picks in Gladney and Cleveland and Jefferson um, and then they went out and had I think 11 more picks 12 more picks after that fact as well so they got a ton of bites of the apple and they got three premium top 50 players so I I hate the fact that they did as well as they did in the draft and they took some really interesting guys too so like Cameron Dantzler is yeah. a guy who Probably played college football at a weight that he's never going to be able to play at the NFL level. And then he bulked up at the combine and ran slow. Um, but if you watch him as a press man corner, he did amazing. So he's kind of in this spot where it's like, I don't know if you're ever going to find a weight that ends up working out for you. Or um, if you were just like an extremely good college player whose specific traits doesn't translate to the pro level. Or if he ends up flipping that switch and ends up figuring it out. Um, but they took him in the third round. You know, a guy like James Lynch, who's like at 290 and at some point was playing in like a two-point stance and stuff like that for Baylor, um, was in a really interesting role that he was basically a linebacker for him. And then Troy Dye, who I love as a, as a Duck, right? I'm a Ducks fan. He played, I think he's probably started four years, and he's been playing in that cast for like three or something. And he's, you know, all Pac-12 and stuff like that, so... These guys are pretty interesting that they ended up taking it. I was pretty um, pretty disappointed that they did so well. Yeah, <laughs> I was also right. disappointed that uh, Detroit uh, passed on the Auburn defensive tackle. 
because that was a rumor that was swirling late and, you know, silly season and all that. But there were a lot of people who were convinced that they were actually going to take Derek Brown, who I don't think is that great suited for the NFL game. And I thought they were going to end up passing Okuda for him. And I sure was bummed when they turned in that pick. Yeah, that would have been great had they had taken Derek Brown. And I'm with you. I, I really like Derek Brown overall as a player, but um, I just think for the type of player that he is moving into the NFL level, a, a top even 15 pick is is super, super rich for that type of player. So that would have been nice. Um, I'm going to let you get out of here because this has been fantastic, and I know you got things to do. But any other smart football takes that you currently have that you'd like to share with the world or anything else you'd like to plug on the way out? Not really. Smart football takes. Let me think. Uh, uh, block with your running back in pass yeah. protection. Yeah. That was something that someone on Twitter was saying. I saw that. <laughs> There's some, some DFS guy was like, the the best thing that can happen uh, when you use a block, uh, running back in protection is nothing. And the best thing that can happen when he's running a route is a touchdown. And I was like, huh, what do you think the quarterback does when the running back blocks someone? Like, I'm very confused as to how you think they don't they don't matter at all or anything. So, yeah, use running backs in, in protection. People have been doing it for centuries. Yeah, at least one. It's a, it's a good philosophy to have, especially if you have ones that can do it adequately. Uh, maybe give your quarterback some time. Maybe make sure he doesn't get blindside hit. There's a lot of good things that can come out of that besides uh, just nothing. <laughs> Absolutely. Right. All right, Justice. This is fantastic as always. I definitely need to find ways to have you on more often. Uh, one of the smartest football minds out there, and I mean that sincerely. I'm not just uh, plugging you because you're on the show. I love following you on Twitter, and uh, I think you've got a, a really bright future ahead of you. I know uh, things you know, kind of came to a head with the XFL, but I certainly wish you the best of luck moving forward and i know you're absolutely going to crush it out there yes sir appreciate it man i'll be back yeah. on anytime you want me to be on here you bet i appreciate that greatly uh for those listening thank you so much as always uh we'll get you out of here i know we're always longer than our 20 minutes that we promise i think that's more of just a running joke at this point always appreciate you following along uh, make sure to check out tomorrow's episode as we kind of get back to our normal teams and our normal groups a huge kudos to all of those who did a phenomenal job covering the draft I'm going to get you out of here until next time. And as always, go Paco. Whether you're a world-class athlete or a podcaster like me, we all understand the importance of mental and physical well-being and proper recovery for top-notch performance. That's why I'm excited that Unified Healing is sponsoring podcasts on the Blue Wire Network. Unified Healing is a new and super innovative global network of wellness centers powered by Energy Enhancement System, or EE System. If you haven't heard of the EE System yet, then you'll want to listen up. This technology promotes wellness, deep relaxation, purification, and rejuvenation. Wherever you are across the globe, access to a center is easy and affordable. Interested in experiencing the EE System technology for yourself? Go to unifiedhealing.com slash bluewire to learn more and find a center near you. 
That's unified, U-N-I-F-Y-D, healing.com slash bluewire. No material or testimonials on the Unified Healing website are intended to be viewed as medical advice or a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified healthcare provider with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition or treatment and before undertaking a new healthcare regimen, including EE system.